Good morning, Christchurch. Uh, before we get to the sermon this morning, which will be from uh, Deacon Aaron Moniz, um, I want to say a word about what's happening and has happened this weekend. It's a very big weekend. Um, and if you were here at the retreat, you know some of what's been going on in the communications, or you got your email and you've heard about what's happening here at the church. And we're going to come back to that during announcement time, and I'll share a little bit more, look, look back at the weekend and uh, some of what we've been talking about. But the thing that we've been talking about the most is friendship and the art of friendship. And we started Friday night into Saturday morning. Aaron taught several sessions in the morning. We had this really beautiful exercise uh, making family portraits, which we'll be finding a way to share that with, with all of you. Um, and then this morning, Aaron is going to conclude this topic of what it means to be friends with God and each other. Um, so let me, would you come on up and say a couple of words about Erin? Some of you know Erin, and she doesn't need an introduction because she's uh, preached here a couple of times before, um, but some of you are also new. Erin is um, head of the chapel and chaplain's office at Baylor University. She oversees the chapel uh, ministry that they have, and then the different chaplains that are loving and serving the students and thinking through, leading uh, how they think through the spiritual formation of students at Baylor University. Um, she's also a deacon in the Anglican Church, and um, we have been very involved with a little church plant up there called All Saints Waco, and she is part of that team that has been launching that church plant. Uh, you've had, we've had Father Matthew Autry here before, and he was kind of a catalyst for that church plant. They've now called a full-time priest to lead that church to the next stage, and Erin um, serves in that context. She's kind of got a, a foot in the church and a foot in the academy and among uh, the younger generation doing discipleship, making disciples in both places. Um, would you join me in prayer as we prepare to hear from God's word? Father, thank you for Aaron, and thank you for her ministry, both in the church and on campus. Uh, we thank you that um, when we open your word, it does not return void. And there's something this morning that you, uh, that you have for each individual, and it might be different for, for us. But what is that one thing? What is the thing, God, that you want to lodge deeply within our hearts, our minds, and soul, that we would know you and love you? Because something of who you are has been revealed to us this morning through your word. We ask that you would shine your light upon that for every one of us and fill Aaron with your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Christchurch. So good to be back with you, um, having spent most of the weekend with several of you. Um, I want to start by relaying a story I heard from my parents recently. They attended uh, a wedding that was a little strange. A friend of ours' uh, daughter got married, and she's not very religious, and so they had the best friend be the officiant. You've seen those, right? So he had his wedding service printed from the internet, and uh, uh, they did the, do you take this man, this woman? We do, we do. And then he got to the vows, and in the middle of the ceremony, the couple stopped him and said, no, no. We're not doing vows. And the confused uh, best friend slash officiant was like, oh, you, you wrote your own vows. And they said, no, no, we're just not doing them. Can we just skip to the rings bit? And so they did. And then they went and had a party. Uh, now, friends, I've been to a lot of weddings, and I've got some stories of some strange weddings, but I have never seen anything like this. 
a wedding with no vows. Like, it's, it's just, it just boggles the mind. I think to myself, okay, so, so no, 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 we, we want to get married to each other, but let's just be clear, we commit to nothing. <laughs> this is how we want this to start. This is where we want this to go. I think about this because we, somewhere in us, we feel that, that relationships and the success of relationships, especially close relationships, have to have these component parts, have to have something that bind them together. And we've been spending the weekend talking about friendship, talking about essentially what relationships are for and why they matter to the local church. And so to just sort of put a capstone on our adventure this weekend through that, I, I want to really focus today on the book of Ruth. And for any of you who have heard preaching or teaching from the Book of Ruth, I feel like there's a need to dispel a couple myths about the book. Um, first and foremost, it's not a love story. I don't know, I've seen it taught in many, many times that it is sort of this biblical romance novel that we, we follow along with as sort of this like treatment for how we understand biblical love between Ruth and Boaz. And let me just tell you, friends, th this story is not only not a love story, but, but it is not a play-by-play -play on how to do biblical romance. Do not <laughs> do it. Um, you, you might get arrested. Um, they're just, it, is, it is unorthodox for sure. It's not, it's not a love story, but in, in, in other ways too, we, we use like the lectionary uh, reading you heard this morning, I, I will go where you go, your God will be my God, I will not leave you, um, is actually popular in weddings. In fact, you may have been in weddings or seen weddings where that verse is, is uh, part of the service. And I find that interesting because, I mean, of course, it's this powerful moment and I can understand why it's used in weddings, but I always chuckle a little bit because it's not something that Ruth or Boaz say to each other. It's actually Ruth saying it to her mother-in-law. Um, and I don't know many of you daughter-in-laws who are here. I'm just, just waxing beautiful poetry to your mother-in-law <laughs> that uh, is often used at weddings. I, I always find it a little interesting. But, but it's, not, it's not a love story. The love story between Ruth and Boaz is not, the romance is not the central feature of this story. And we talked a little bit this weekend about how we often maybe centralize or elevate romance in the church in ways we ought not. So we're not going to do it with this book. Now, not to say that there isn't a marriage story in the book of Ruth. In fact, there is between Ruth and Boaz. But what I love about this book is that it actually has all three intimacy motifs in it. And if you were here this weekend, we talk about the fact that throughout Scripture, there's these occurring intimacy motifs of family, friendship, and marriage that are constantly being used by the Lord in Scripture to communicate the gospel and communicate God's self and communicate that relationship with God to us. But even though it's recurrent throughout Scripture, it's rare that we have a book, a story like this one that contains not only all three, but with such detail. And so I love referencing the story because not only do we see family and friendship and marriage, but we also see its juxtapositions, which is we encounter widowhood and barrenness and isolation and loneliness and death. But even with these three motifs being wrapped up in the story of Ruth, uh, just like this weekend, it is, is worth noting that the central, most fundamental of those motifs displayed in the book of Ruth is friendship, particularly the relationship and the journey of Ruth and Naomi and their progression towards chosen family. And what's interesting um, is that as you're reading about this and the way the scholars understand the book, Ruth, Ruth of course, is sort of the central figure. I mean, she does get top billing um, in the marquee, but as it turns out, the story of Ruth is told from Naomi's point of view. And I love this about how we understand the friendship being unfolded in this book. It is Naomi telling us Ruth's story and acting as sort of the, the in-house theologian, 
not only helping us see the story of Ruth and what happens to her and Naomi together, but helping us see the interventions of God in the story. And that allows us, Naomi's sort of version, that allows us to then truly land on the thesis of this book of Ruth. See, the book of Ruth, it's, it's not a romance tale, nor is it even about these interpersonal relationships so much as it is about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what I really want to drive home. Everything from this weekend, everything that we're going to, to be experiencing today is that when we talk about things like friendship, when we talk about intimate relationships, we are not just talking about nice things and isn't it great to have friends and boy, do we love them and they're super swell and let's be, let's be good friends to each other. There's something deeper going on here because it starts and Cliff started off the weekend by telling us about friendship with God and there's something connected between friendship with God and us understanding the gospel through this intimacy motif where he says, let me help you understand the kind of God I am, the kind of story that you're telling because learning how to be friends with each other is wrapped up in the gospel. And so I don't think we can talk about intimacy without talking about the gospel. And I don't think we can talk about the gospel without talking about relationships. And so where is this gospel? Where is this gospel of Christ in the book of Ruth? Well, in this case, I think it can be summed up by saying that we see a story, a story of relationships that produce hesed. And hesed is a Hebrew word a Hebrew word whose, um, uh, the word I, I, will, I will be butchering the pronunciation of this word uh, throughout our time here today. Because, a, but I, I need to go back to the Hebrew because the English translations of this word are, are just not quite, they don't quite capture it. It's really hard to translate this word said into English. We often see it show up as things like kindness or loving kindness, but there's a richness to this Word, one that uh, one of the scholars of the book of Ruth says is, is displayed like someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for us. It's a very rich word, and it, it ends up being how we learn what God is doing, the story of God displaying the gospel in and through these relationships. So if you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, it's a very quick read, um, easy to come by, but I'll hit you some highlights. Uh, the story starts uh, with with scarcity and death. Naomi and her husband and her sons have had to leave all their people, all their friends. Some of us have had to move in, away from people we love because of a job, of resources. And, and it starts with the scarcity, needing to leave the comfort and the community that has been so important to them and go to a foreign land um, and live with the Moabites. Um, and the Moabites, from what we know from scripture, are not very nice people. They're, they're, they're pretty nasty people, and which is a testament even more to Ruth's character coming out of the society. But they find some good people in Moab, including Ruth and Orpah, and uh, Naomi's sons get married, but there's no children. And then the worst thing that could happen happens to a woman in this time period. All the men die. And there's Naomi. She is worthless in the society she is in now. And she truly believes, and we hear it in, in how we read the lectionary uh, reading, we hear that she she's, believes God has given up on her, that there's nothing left for her. So she might as well, might as well go back home. There's nothing for her here. But she truly believes that God has abandoned her. And so she doesn't want to incur anybody else's uh, part in this story of, of death and destruction. And so she sends her daughter-in-laws away, and Ruth says, oh no, oh no, I'm coming with you. And Naomi says, fine, fine. But that begins to rewrite the script. See, Naomi is often pictured for us as the female Job, a woman who is just 
bound up with grief and despair and loss. But Ruth comes with her. Ruth says, I'm with you. I am joining with you in this. And begrudgingly, but reluctantly, Naomi says, okay, let's go. And then something happens, a hinge point in the story. Ruth goes out and she's taking care of Naomi and she's working hard all day and she meets Boaz while she's gleaning in the field and she, she has some unique encounters where she gets to actually eat food from his table and she comes back and tells Naomi this and Naomi says something, and this is the hinge point of the story in chapter two, verse 20, where she says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his hesed, his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man, speaking of Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And suddenly it clicks with Naomi. Maybe God has not abandoned us. This has said, this, this someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for us moment shows up in this point of the story, the centerpiece of her and Ruth's story. And what I find so fun about the friendship between Naomi and Ruth is it really gets a little wild from here on out. Because instead of going to Boaz and saying, hey, I don't know if you know, but like you're a close relative, can we do some negotiating? Can we figure this out? Like I'd like to, 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 to claim in on this. Naomi says, no, I've got a plan. We're gonna try something. And it's a little strange. It's something that I would only level as sort of like hijinks, right? What happens next in the story and what she tells Ruth to do and how they work this all out with Boaz is a bit of a crazy backwards way of going about things. But Naomi is at the helm. And what I love about this is Ruth is like, I'm in. Let's do this. What do you want me to do? Break in someone's house in the middle of the night? Let's go. Like, no hesitation. They're in it together. And I love that because that's also a picture of the things we love about friendship, right? The fun, crazy stuff that we do together. Ruth is in, and Naomi's like, I have got this. Follow me, kid. This is what we're going to do. And this whole story unfolds. And that, that is such a display of the joy of friendship. But I really want us to see what's actually happening deep down, because all the relationships in this story reflect the work of God's redemptive kindness and chosen family. People are choosing each other left and right in this story. Naomi is choosing Ruth Uh, Ruth is choosing Naomi. Um, They are choosing Boaz. Boaz is choosing them. And this chosen family, as we talked about this weekend, is the way we understand friendship in the local church. Our friendships become manifest in this idea of chosen family. It's important, again, not just for the hijinks and the fun, but we look back and we see when Ruth first chose Naomi, something happened, and she said, where you go, I will go. This, this is important, not, not just as we might assume, because it's a tender moment of devotion between Ruth and her mother-in-law, but Carolyn Cussis James, in her book, The Gospel of Ruth, says this collision that takes place, between, takes place between the weight of evidence Naomi has mounted against God, and then also the radical choice that Ruth makes based on her devotion to Yahweh and to Naomi. So in defiance of Naomi's bitterness, and her, her idea that, that God has abandoned her, Ruth begins, and it lights a fuse. It lights a fuse, and Naomi doesn't see it yet, and she doesn't receive it yet, but this moment where Ruth does this lights a fuse that we see explode in chapter 2, verse 20, when Naomi finally gets it and says, the Lord has not abandoned us. And so Custis James says, God was speaking to Naomi, but the voice belonged to her daughter-in-law. 
Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Friendship is an embodiment of the friendship we have with God, our friendships together. And they function in a way that is necessary for us to help each other grow and even know and experience the gospel. Because see, something happened. God took on flesh and came incarnate as Jesus Christ and walked the earth and then he died on a cross and then he conquered to death and rose from the grave and then he hung around for a bit and saw some folks and had some breakfast on the beach and then he ascended into heaven where he is still alive and kicking at the right hand of God the Father. But he says, don't worry, I'm not gone. I have sent the third person of the Trinity, someone to be with you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit And where did the Holy Spirit go? I think sometimes, like, wouldn't it have been nice to have it be in puppies or ice cream? (laughs) I think really great choices, but no, the Lord says, I am going to inhabit my people. And we go, oh, really? Have you met people, right? (sighs) Beautiful, messy, wonderful, but disappointing Difficult people, and God says, no, that's where I'm going to be. If you are locating me, this side of the story, that is where you find me. We can't do this without each other. We can't do this without each other. And so this reframes how we understand friendship, because this friendship with God then informs our friendships with each other. And yes, they are fun, but they are also about us learning the story of God together in powerful ways, because we forget. We forget who we are. I was saying in the last service that I I really love coming here to preach because I often preach to college students and I have so many cultural references that they just don't get all the time. But I imagine there are some of you in this room who have experienced the cinematic classic of 1984 that is the never-ending story. Yes? Okay, I'm not alone. Thank you, Christ Church. If you've never seen it and you want to see the best special effects the 80s had to offer in large puppetry, this is for you. It's a classic. But I love it, but I actually also love the book, as as it so happens. The movie is is good, but the book is often better. And the movie only gets you halfway through the book. And in the book, Bastion Balthazar Bucks, the main character, he has this this magical medallion that he wears, and it allows him to, to wish for anything he wants, and it comes true. And so after he saves Fantasia, he's now in Fantasia, and he's making all these wishes, and he comes to discover that he has to make wishes in order to find his way back home to where his father is, who has now occurred to him as the most important person in his life. So he has to find his way home by making these wishes, which he does rather poorly along the way. And there's a catch, though, because every time he makes a wish, he loses a memory. And so as the story goes on, he begins to lose more and more of himself, more and more of his story, more and more of his identity, and he makes some terrible choices. And his friends, his two best friends, Atreyu and Falcor, he ends up losing them. In fact, he goes to war with them. And at the end of the the last several chapters of the book, Bastion is on his own. He is not with anyone. He is finding his way blindly through, trying desperately to get back home. And we find him at the very end of the story. He has found his way to the gate. He's found his way to the gateway that will take him back to his father, but he's used his very last wish, which means he stands there with no memory. He has lost himself completely. And the gatekeepers have only one question for him. Who are you? And he can't answer. He has lost himself. And as if by magic, who should appear 
but Atreyu and Falcor, who we've not seen for many chapters, and they show up, and when they see the, the, what's happening, that the gatekeepers are asking Bastion who he is, and he's not answering it, it occurs to them what has happened. And Atreyu steps forward, and he says, I know who he is. This is Bastion Balthazar Bux, savior of Fantasia. And he begins to tell the story and the identity of Bastion. And the gatekeepers turn to Atreyu, and they say, by what authority do you get to tell us who he is? Trace says, I am his friend. And the gate opens, and Bastion is restored to himself, and he gets to go home. This is what we do for each other. This is friendship. The art of friendship is not just about learning to be better people, though we should be. We should be grace givers and grace receivers. We should stop ghosting each other we should allow ourselves to be a little bit more inconvenienced. But that's not why we need friendship. That's not why we need intimate relationships. It is because this is where we encounter and embody the gospel, where we tell each other the story so that we can remember who God is, so that we can remember who we are, so that we can then live in the light of that gospel story. Something I love, if you didn't catch it in Ruth. 2.20, that Naomi, when she finally comes to herself and realizes the Lord has not abandoned her, she says something profound. He has not stopped showing his ascend to the living and the dead. And the dead. Because in that moment, Naomi realizes this is not just God's faithfulness. And, and it, it's, it's, not, it's not Boaz doing it. It's not Ruth doing it. But they are embodying it. But she realizes the Lord, through these relationships, is restoring not just her, but her husband and her sons. Their legacy, their land, their time is restored from a long time back when they had to leave and go away. All of that is restored. The Lord is doing powerful work through messy people, Christchurch. And we show up as friends because we are called into these relationships. Yes, for the fun stuff, but mostly because we embody this gospel story. And I'm going to end with a quote from Stanley Hauerwas that says this better than I can. He says, saints cannot exist without a community as they require, like all of us, nurturance by a people who, while often unfaithful, preserve the habits necessary to learn the story of God. Nurturance by people who, often unfaithful, preserve the habits necessary to learn the story of God. It's messy. Friendship is messy. Relationships are messy. We are messy people and broken people. We talked about some of those challenges this weekend. But here we are on this Sunday morning, together, preserving the habits necessary to learn the story of God. And in throughout the week, I hope that these relationships continue, that we are forward-facing and saying we are going to give ourselves to being friends because we believe that the gospel is at stake in our community. And I hope this for you, and I pray this for you. And as we end this weekend together, let us be that people who say we want this because we believe the gospel is fueling it and because our friendship with God allows us the ability to do this well. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.